Let's uh, go once again to our Father in prayer, this time with our needs and our concerns. Uh, Father in heaven, um, we do lift up our country to you this morning. Um, as we know that there is, always seems to be political chaos, and we, uh, I don't know if we're unique, God, but we have a tendency to fixate on these things as if this world is our home. Remind us that it is not. Remind us that we live for another kingdom, an eternal one that will reign in justice and fairness and equity and peace and where the troubles of this world will seem but a distant memory. Nonetheless, Father, we do pray for peace in our country. We pray, Father, that cool heads, reasonable minds, wisdom, gentleness, courage, justice would prevail. Father, we are not insightful enough, most of us in this room, to know legal matters and political matters, but we entrust things to your hand and pray for peace because we know that in peace your gospel can go out freely and we pray that that is exactly what would happen and that we would take advantage of the peace, the freedom that we have to worship and to speak here in Cleveland, here at Gateway, to make known the goodness of your gospel, of a Savior who has been too kind to us, who have committed too many crimes. Father, we pray for the nation of Guinea-Bissau, we thank you, Father, for the strong churches that you have begun there. We thank you for the partnerships they have in Brazil to train pastors. We pray, though, Father, for more pastors to be raised up, especially in those remote and rural areas. We pray, Father, that you give existing pastors a heart for less comfortable settings, more distant settings. And they would go into those places, even places that are unreached by your gospel. We thank you for the groups of Christians that are forming among the Fula, and we pray that they would be a light and a witness among their people and to the other peoples. And we pray, Father, that you would reconcile the different ethnic groups and tribes and heritages of Guinea-Bissau into one church that stands as a testimony of the unifying power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our my sermon this morning, that I would be faithful to say what you give me to say and that I would speak only things that are true and from your word, that we would be shaped and transformed by it and we'd be moved to be more like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you're following along, we're in a series on Titus. These cards are in the back. You can grab one. They tell you what's coming up and Book of Titus is in the back. It'll be up on the screen. It's in the back of your New Testament. Uh, very short little letter from Paul to Titus. I'm going to read a passage from chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. You can follow along in your Bibles, however you like to do that. Turn, click, swipe, or tap. Um, and then we'll dig in a bit. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and believing, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They possess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, outside of some philosophical streams of anarchism, most of us agree that we need organization, we need leadership, and, and as a result, leaders. In fact, we rarely are without leaders for very long. In the absence of leaders, new leaders rise up. It's, it's inevitable. Uh, they might be formal leaders, they might be informal leaders, but someone usually steps into the gap. When people of good intention and competency don't step up or aren't available, though, it leaves an opening for the incompetent and the evil. And that seems to have been what happened in the first century on the island of Crete. Last week we saw that the Apostle Paul had left his trusted ministry partner, Titus, on the island of Crete with the express instructions to appoint multiple elders, shepherds, pastors of God's people in each church on the island. But Titus wasn't supposed to pick just anyone. There were standards. But those standards didn't look like a skills profile or qualifications list on a modern job description. Instead, the qualifications were almost entirely driven by character and habit. Titus was supposed to find men of exceptionally high character, which was really just having the kind of character that we should expect from followers of Jesus. We said that they were men who do ordinary well. They simply needed to be men who exemplified what it meant to follow Jesus. They were leaders who heard the gospel call, found gospel salvation, and lived gospel lives. Why were such men necessary? That's the focus of the passage we're looking at this morning. And the short of it is this, that having gospel leaders is a matter of life and death. Having gospel leaders is a matter of life and death. And this passage breaks down really kind of to the specific nature of the problems facing the churches on Crete, the most pressing solution to the problem, and an assessment or a judgment about that problem. The nature of the solution and the judgment. Our passage begins with the word for, which connects it to the last paragraph. That was Paul's instructions to appoint elders of high character in every city. So for is pointing to the reason for those instructions. And Paul does not mince words here. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. So clearly the problem is people. And Paul has choice words for those people. What kind of people are they? They are insubordinate. That's the same word he used earlier in the chapter to describe how an elder's children, a pastor's children, should not behave. And that makes sense. That the children should not be insubordinate to their 
parents and a man who has insubordinate children probably has stuff he needs to take care of at home before he can take care of God's church. So what does it mean that these people are insubordinate? Insubordinate to what? Well, I think if we go back one verse, we see the answer. Look back at verse 9. Speaking about the kind of man that Timothy should appoint as a pastor, Paul wrote, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul is talking about a people, I think, who are insubordinate to the trustworthy word as taught, who are insubordinate to sound doctrine. In the little letter of Jude in the New Testament, which was written by Jesus' brother, Jude writes about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The Christian faith is eternal. It's unchanging. The forms and the the styles might change as we adapt to new cultures and eras. It looks different here in America than it does in Guinea-Bissau. But the truths that we hold dear are firm and fixed and unchanging. They were taught by Jesus to his apostles and taught by his apostles to the first churches and taught to each of us through a stream of enduring teaching. And anytime, anytime a Christian accurately communicates the truth of the gospel of Jesus, he or she has authority. That authority doesn't come from the person. It doesn't come from their position. It doesn't come from their title. It comes from the message itself, which comes from God. Christian, if that's you, it's why you can have confidence to share the good news about Jesus. The good news comes with its own authority because it's God's own message. You could be a nobody in the eyes of the world, but there is authority in your accurate communication of the gospel. Conversely, if anyone goes astray from the gospel, that person is insubordinate. To the message, yeah. But since it's Jesus' message, they're insubordinate to Jesus himself. And so by putting it in these terms, Paul is not mincing words. It is one thing to ask questions. It's one thing to give careful consideration of a claim. I think we should do that as Christians. But when we stray from the truth, we are in rebellion against God. It's a serious situation. These people Paul was concerned about were also empty talkers and deceivers. Empty talkers are those who just speak a lot of fluff. What they say sounds good, but it doesn't really have any substance. Or maybe uh, individuals who think they know what they're talking about, but what their message is is actually so far off base as to be worthless. In either case, they end up deceiving people. Many of them, maybe even most of them, don't intend to deceive people. They think they're saying something important. But because they're insubordinate to the gospel and don't understand what they're talking about, they deceive. And that's really important to grasp. Because sometimes when we talk about false teachers, we want them to fit some sort of stereotype. 
We want them to be angry or cruel or mean or disgusting. And sometimes they are. But I've also had conversations with Christians about false teachers that sound like this. But they're so nice. Or they're just trying to help people. I think their positivity is good. I was helped so much by what they said. And all of those things can be true. But the person could still be insubordinate, an idle talking deceiver. It's not about whether we like the person or not. It's definitely not about whether we love the person or not. It's about whether the message corresponds to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Last week I, I mentioned Shailen's song, False Teachers, uh, in which he calls out by name a number of false teachers of our day, uh, particularly uh, preachers of the so-called prosperity gospel, which is actually an impoverished gospel. But a little bit less known is the fact that the son of one of those false teachers tried to defend his mother, the false teacher, online against Shylin's accusations that his mom was a false teacher. And what was the son's response? Well, well, his son's response was that he loved Jesus and that it was his mom who taught him to love Jesus, that his mom prays for him. And he doesn't have a super large, crazy salary. But none of those things were why Lynn had called his mother a false teacher. They may have been true. And if they were true, Shai admitted they were good things. But none of that addressed the fact that the man's mother had often and repeatedly and publicly had on her website sermons and teachings and promising that the gospel, or telling us that the gospel promised healing from every disease and financial prosperity in this life. In fact, I, I looked her up just to, to see what was new, and that same woman today in 2023, 10 years on, invites people to, on her website to get your best triple favor seed ready because she believes that God will release his triple favor and harvest to meet you at your point of greatest need. If your triple favor seed, that's capitalized like it's a thing, stretches your faith, it will move God. And then she claims to give a testimony of a person who sowed a seed of $1,000 to her ministry and got a job offer making $10,000 more a year. And, and so the, her seed didn't just triple, it increased tenfold. And what's the implication? That if you give this woman's ministry money, you'll make even more money. That's not a promise in Scripture. That's a lie from hell. So do you see that false teachers can mix the good with the bad, truth with error. But sometimes one small error you know, on your tax return can mess up every number. One little mistake in your code can expose a vulnerability to the entire system. Less than one-sixteenth of a teaspoon of potassium cyanide in a glass of otherwise delicious and refreshing ice-cold sweet tea will kill you. None of us is perfect. You can brew the tea a little too strong. You can add the wrong amount of sweetener. I'm sure our native Texans, Daniel and Amy, would tell you that we can't make sweet tea up north. 
It might be imperfect sweet tea, but it's refreshing and it won't kill you. But teaching that loses sight of the eternal gospel is dangerous. It's like mixing potassium cyanide in the sweet tea. Note that Paul wrote about Crete that this problem was especially acute among the circumcision party. And, and that tells us a little clue about what kind of false teaching he was most concerned with. This false teaching, or at least a lot of it, is coming from Jewish Christians. In the New Testament, the circumcision or the circumcision party refers to a group of Jewish Christians who insisted that Christians, even Gentiles, even non-Jewish Christians, had to maintain the interpretations of the Jewish purity laws that had been passed down by tradition, including things like circumcision. In, in essence, they were saying they needed to become Jews before they could become Christians, before they could become followers of Christ. And not just any kind of Jew, but very strict, adhering Jews. The apostles and other church leaders, though, made it clear that circumcision and other Jewish customs, like eating kosher food or keeping your hair cut a certain way, were no longer binding on God's people. And I'll, I'll come back to the idea, but for now, it's just important to know that some people in the early Christian community wanted to insist on those things. Some of them were corrected and, and set on the right path, but others apparently set themselves up as teachers and leaders and tried to spread their ideas. But it wasn't all about circumcision and kosher foods. Like down in verse 14, Paul says something about Jewish myths. We don't know exactly what myths they were, but we do know that around that time, it was popular in some Jewish circles to kind of create stories around obscure Bible characters, like somebody just mentioned in a genealogy, and then kind of create some sort of spiritual fan fiction around them, maybe with a lesson or a moral involved, but it was something that you needed to learn from them, and that those things almost became wisdom and, and insight and teaching. But, but those tales could easily become a distraction from the truth of Scripture. After all, it was hard to get a Bible back then. Most people only heard God's Word when it was read aloud to them on Sundays in church gatherings. So why waste time with made-up stories, especially if those stories were teaching lessons that separated from God's Word? Example of this today, something that doesn't happen, well, an example might be something like the Prayer of Jabez. That, that, that's a book that might be before some of your times, but it was immensely popular when it came out in 2000 and, and remained popular for a good 10 or 12 years. And if you grew up in a churchy church and, and graduated high school or college sometime between 2001 and 2005, there is a good chance someone gave you a card, a pen, a pen holder, a bookmark, a plaque, a business card holder, a sign, a framed picture, coffee mug, a glass, maybe even a shot glass, or a Bible with a reference to Jabez on it possibly along with a copy of the book. And the book took an obscure figure from the Bible named Jabez, mentioned in a genealogy of 1 Chronicles 4, and spun it into a New York Times best-selling book about how if you just pray the right way, God will absolutely always, always answer your prayer. That sort of dribble is just a waste of Christians' time at best and misleading heresy at worst. And it was a concern on 
Crete. In fact, Paul is so resolute about the dangers of these false teachers, he says flatly, they must be silenced. That wasn't Paul being overly protective. The false teachers were already doing damage. He he writes in verse 11, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Upsetting whole families is actually upsetting whole houses. And it's hard to know if Paul is referring to the families that live in those houses or the churches that met in those houses. Because we know that many, if not most, of the early churches met in larger homes of more well-to-do members after they were kicked out of the synagogues. But either way, it's a problem. They're causing consternation or strife or confusion among the Christian communities. And worse, they're doing it for shameful gain. The very thing that Paul said earlier in chapter 1, that true Christian pastors, as all Christians, should actually hate. It seems like these teachers have a profit motive. Now, true Christian teachers might receive an income from their gospel, or from the gospel, but their motive should not be the profit. Their motive should be the truth and glory of Jesus. One way you can diagnose whether a person is teaching for shameful gain rather than the Savior's glory is to ask whether they stop when they have enough. In the book of Proverbs, toward the end, chapter 30, we have this saying, which is a a good summary of the Bible's teaching on money. A man named Agur writes, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The food that is needful for me is the leader, is the teacher, is the pastor content with the salary that is needful for him, with the bank account that is needful for him. And that's slightly different, slightly different than asking if they're rich, because as I said last week, some people love money, but they're just bad at getting it or they're bad at keeping it, and that's not uh, a credential. If they love money, that's a problem. But even those people have the same problem. Whether they have it, whatever they have, it's never enough. Where are they getting the money? Well, they're getting the money from the people they teach their lives to. And if you lie and you deceive, you say things that are false in order to get rich, what does that make you? It makes you a thief. So they are causing emotional trauma to the Christian community, but they are also causing financial trauma to the Christian community, a community that was probably poor to begin with. Most of our historical knowledge of the early church suggests that they were largely poor. But we see the same thing today, don't we? Extraordinarily rich pastors and those hoping to become extraordinarily rich 
often at the expense of those who can afford it the least. This was an enormous problem on Crete, and some things don't change. There's another problem, though. The, <clears throat> the people of Crete have a bit of a reputation, as Paul writes in verse 12 and, and the start of verse 13. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy, glutton, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. The prophet that Paul is quoting is believed to have been a man named Epimenides of Crete who lived several hundred years before Paul. It's not the only time Paul quoted an ancient writer showing he was a quite well-educated and well-read. Of course, our modern sensibilities might chafe at using these sort of broad generalizations of a people, but it was a Cretan himself who made the statement. And Crete did have a reputation. The word Cretan was actually turned into a verb in ancient Greek. If you went about Cretizing, it meant you spoke like a Cretan, which meant you lied and you deceived. That is how well their reputation had spread. And the Cretans were also notoriously greedy in the ancient world. There appears to have been a long, long history of ancient sources slamming the people of Crete, including themselves. But you know what? God even wanted to save Cretans. Who is the, the they in our culture? What is the class of people that we think of as bad or wrong or unworthy or stupid or wicked or lazy or untrustworthy? Whatever your bias even if it's significantly justified, God wants to save that type of person too. And chances are he has and he will. But the pervasive ills of Cretan culture meant that the Christians there were particularly susceptible to get drawn in by the nonsense of these false teachers. Paul uses the popular opinions of Cretans to buttress his point, but whatever or wherever Paul went and wherever we go, Christians are in danger. There's a reason why, even as we sang this morning, God so often uses the idea of a flock, a fold of sheep, to refer to his people. Sheep in the ancient world were at risk. They were at risk of being taken away by thieves or killed by predators. And so God in his goodness gives us shepherds. Maybe that's another reason why Paul insisted on multiple pastors in each church. Because even shepherds are sheep. So what's to be done about these flocks of Christians living on an island of wolves? Well, that's where Paul turns to the end of 13 and 14 gives us a little bit of the solution. He says, For this reason, rebuke them sharply that they may be healthy in the faith and not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. It's possible that Paul is telling us, or telling Titus to rebuke the false teachers, but it seems more likely he's telling Titus to rebuke the Cretan Christians who are at risk of the false teachers. 
Now, rebuking in this Christian context is to correct someone, to show someone their error with the hope that they turn away from it. And rebuke is such a harsh word in English. Maybe that's a commentary on us. A commentary on us that we do not have very many words for sharp correction, which we all desperately need, that don't sound harsh or bad to us. But maybe we need to get over that. I was at my son's baseball game yesterday, and the first baseman and the right fielder were playing catch before an inning, and the outfielder snapped at the first baseman, don't throw the ball like that. Like, you gotta, don't throw the ball, you gotta get your arm back. And I was really immediately shocked a bit by how strong his criticism was as like an equal to an equal. These were, these were peers. But then this kid immediately followed it up with some explanation about how to throw the ball correctly. The, and the first baseman adjusted his form and the right fielder praised him. And he, then he de demonstrated for the first baseman the difference between the motion he had been making and the motion he's starting to make now and, and how he needs to, to, to get it right. That was a good teammate. He cared about winning. He cared about his team. He cared about making his teammate better. And that inning was about to start. The first baseman needed a quick rebuke to put him on the right track. And there was no animosity there. He received that feedback because he wanted to be the first baseman, wanted to be better. That I thought that was a little too harsh at first, I think says more about me than anything else. Because that kid was exactly right. Rebuke isn't about scorn. It's not about embarrassment. It's not about shame. It's about making each other better. And when we're talking about false teaching, we're not talking about relay throws at home plate. We're talking about spiritual vitality, even life and death. The stakes are too high. No one would be upset with a parent or a sister or a friend who screamed, Get out of there! Get back! when you're about to walk into traffic and, and smash into the Healthline bus. You might be shocked at the tone of their voice, but you'd likely immediately thank them. And that's what it's about. Because the goal is that they be healthy in the faith. The faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Just as there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life on this narrow path. And only on this narrow path is life. Everything off of it is spiritual death. So step back for a moment. Titus needs to do this. He needs to find elders and pastors to do this. But remember, these elders are not people with a special set of skills or a crazy different life. They are just men who do the ordinary Christian life well. This need to correct, it's not just for pastors. Just like it wasn't only for the coach of my son's team, it was also for the right fielder. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 where the author writes, Be, but exhort one another each day as long as it is called today that none of you may become hardened by sin's deception. Or in Colossians 3, when Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom. You might say, well, that's exhort, not rebuke. But actually, those are actually two different words from each other and from the word in our passage. But they all overlap quite a bit in meaning. And the point is that each of us has a role in keeping each other on this straight and narrow path of life. I, I can't do that without you. And when someone slips off the path, well, it's true that they are the one who took that step, however unwise and however foolish it was. But it's also fair for each of us to look at ourselves and say, did I do what I could have done, what I should have done to warn them of that pothole or that banana peel? We need each other. Over the next chapters of this letter, uh, Paul will spend significant time helping to unpack what sorts of teaching, what sorts of admonition, what sorts of rebuking and encouragement the churches might need to stay on track. But we'll leave that for those days. But be so before we get there, though, Paul gives a judgment on the situation facing the Cretans, in, uh, the Cretan Christians. And I think this judgment that he gives is actually part of the rebuke, part of the correction that Titus is supposed to bring. When I say judgment, I really do mean that two different ways. We usually hear judgment as something, especially in religious contexts, as a very negative thing something people should not do to other people. But Paul does do it here, which is interesting. But there's also a sense where judgment is a pronouncement, a ruling, like what a judge does, as to what's true, what's accurate. And Paul does that here too. So, so take a look here toward the end of our passage. He says, To the pure, all things are pure, but through the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. To the pure, all things are pure. That's, that's a little enigmatic, isn't it? What does he mean? The word pure is the word used in the Old Testament to speak of things that are ritually clean. If we take the example of kosher foods, lamb was clean, but pork was unclean. Salmon was clean, but octopus was unclean. The Old Testament law gets way more complicated than that, but people can be clean or unclean. And actually, every faithful Israelite would go through times and places where they were clean and, and unclean. You'd be unclean if you touched a dead body or were bleeding. But there were remedies to be made clean again. And it was an important distinction because only those who were clean could enter the tabernacle or later the temple for worship. And only those who were clean could celebrate the sacred holidays. Uh, these laws about clean and unclean are what we sometimes call the Old Testament's ceremonial laws. The Old Testament has moral laws, which are very much still binding, like do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. The Old Testament also has civil laws, like crimes and punishments. And those point us to the moral law, and they point us to ideas of justice and fairness, but they're fundamentally about providing rules for civil order. There's a third category of laws, though, that are ceremonial laws. And those were laws that were designed to help make Israel as a nation of God's people 
have unique characteristics, unique customs that, when combined, made them distinct among all the peoples of the earth. It was a way to set them apart. It was a way to make them holy. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart. So these laws were symbolic of the holiness they were supposed to have. But Christians are clean or pure, not because they have followed all these meticulous regulations that were uh, handed down by Moses and then as interpreted through generations and generations of rabbis. Those things only symbolized holiness. But Christians have been cleansed from the inside out by the blood of Jesus and the washing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus declared all foods clean during his ministry. He taught that his followers were clean by virtue of their connection with him. And when in the early church there was a debate about whether non-Jews could follow Jesus or whether they needed to become Jews first, the apostle Peter summed it up this way. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them, speaking of Gentiles, non-Jews, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So those laws, those ceremonial laws, were done away with by Jesus, who marks his people with the Holy Spirit and not our food or our foreskins. The categories of clean and unclean or pure and impure are now obsolete for us. For those who are sinners, the wicked, the evil, the rebellious, for all of us who have failed to live up to God's standards or even my own standards, we can be made pure. We can be made clean because of Jesus. Though we weren't holy, he was. Though we failed, he was successful. He takes the guilt of guilty people on himself, and he cleanses them. And those who trust that his sacrifice on the cross is the only hope for this sin problem and turn from their way of rebellion are cleansed. They're pure and they will live eternally with God. For us who are Christians, we are pure and all things are pure. That doesn't mean you can go and do whatever you want. That's what Paul is saying. It means that there are no things out there that are off limits. There is nothing in creation that a good God made and pronounced good that cannot be put to use and redeemed if done out of an honor for God. But the reverse is also true. For those who aren't cleansed by the blood of Jesus through their faith in Jesus, everything is unclean. Even food adhering to the most scrupulous standards of kosher certification is unclean to the most kosher observant Jew if he or she has not received Jesus as Hamashiach and Adonai. The, the strictest standards cannot make 
halal meat clean until the Muslim declares that Isa is both al-Rasul and al-Risala, the messenger and the message, and al-Rabu, the Lord. To go farther, whatever your conviction, for whatever reason, about what is yours is meaningless until you recognize that it belongs first to Jesus who made it and you've surrendered to him. Until then, you, whoever you are, are unclean. That's why Paul can pivot to this second judgment, this more personal type of judgment. Speaking of the false teacher, he writes that they profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Those are harsh words, but they're a reminder that many people profess to follow God, but give themselves away by their works. In this case, Paul is probably thinking at least partially about the idea that these false teachers were claiming to be right with God and that the way to be right with God is through their diet, their circumcision, and so forth. But those actions of trying to make themselves right by God by how they prepare their food and eat their food and cut their body actually deny the power of the gospel the true gospel that we can only be made right with God, not on the basis of what we do, but, what on, the, but on the basis of what Jesus has already done. Not on the basis of what we bring to the table, but only by his grace, his good gift. And the reliance on those works to make themselves right with God proves that they don't know the gracious God who is sovereign over all. Instead, they only show that they are detestable. Not in their smell, not in their appearance, but in their acceptability before God. They're disobedient. Because, as Paul writes elsewhere, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And they're unfit for any good work because the only truly good work there is is one that stems from a right relationship with God, empowered by His Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Like the prophet Isaiah spoke so long ago, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Apart from Jesus, life is a series of polluted garments a spinning of nothingness in search of somethingness. It's not so much life as it is a futile funeral procession to eternal death. And we are cretins. We are weak. We are spiritually poor. We are buffeted by trials and we are tempted to sin. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Our spiritual 
lives are on the line. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus, the great shepherd, gives us little shepherds and each other so that we might not leave the fold of God and find ourselves in the arms of a thief or the teeth of a predator. Let's stay true to the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you make us faithful to the gospel? Strengthen us by your spirit to endure to the end. And help us to not grow weary of loving each other in our gentle but firm correction. Help us to even love correction when it comes by your Spirit and through your Word because we know that it is for our eternal good and your eternal glory. Keep us in your hand as you have promised. Hold us firm. We thank you, God, that in our estimation you have given us elders like Zach and Roland, who are faithful to these things, would you raise up more for us that we might never be without those who would shepherd us wisely? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing one more time praise to this God.